Hello and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins, I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager, I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to our wonderful guest today, Rena Rossner, the author of The Sisters of the Winter Wood. Uh, we're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us on Story of the Book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, we are so excited to talk about this book. I have to say, first, I, I uh, pre-ordered it as soon as I learned about it and saw that it was coming out because it's so exactly the kind of like catnip for me as a reader um any kind of like historical fantasy first of all and um second of all any kind of like enchanted woods or creepy woods or anything like that is just so right up my alley um and then it did the thing that like sometimes happens with books that we really really want to read it sat on my shelf until I was like ready to read it and I finally read it last winter like I think like October or November and Haley and, and I was so happy that I read it like it was the perfect timing too it was so so perfect um and I think Haley and I read it at the same time about the same time without even talking to each other about it it was like this wonderful serendipitous um serendipitous thing anyway so it just is it's such a beautiful book and thank you for writing it that's so cool. I love that story. Um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm you. also a fan of both of your books. So I feel like this is a kind of like mutual fandom Aww. type of thing. I'm just excited <laughs> to be talking about, it to, you know, it's the two of you. And I also admire both of your work. So yeah. Rena, would you mind giving us a pitch for the Sisters of the Winter Wood? <laughs> it's probably been a while since you had to it's pitch it. It's been a while. <laughs> also, writers hate giving pitches for their own stuff. Oh, um, I know. I can write pitches for all of my clients. broad strokes. <laughs> um, which we'll get into as well, that I'm also a literary agent. Yes. Um, on top of being an author. But yeah, my book. Um, so The Sisters of the Winter Wood is a story of two sisters who live in a forest um, kind of outside the main village of the town. And one of them can turn into a swan and the other one can turn into a bear. And uh, it's a story of their town, which I think is just as much a character as, you know, anything else in the, in the book, um, the magical forest around it. And this, um, this group of um, goblin-like creatures, um, AKA men who come to the town and, um, um, and how the sisters interact with them and what happens. But it's also uh, based on real history that happened to my family in a town that my family was from. Um, and it's full of a lot of Jewish and Yiddish phrases and a lot of Jewish magic and mythology and folklore. Also a lot of um, Moldovan, Ukrainian mythology and folklore because the town that it's set in is on the border of Dubasar, um, it, which is in the town of Dubasar, which is on the border of Moldova and Ukraine. Um, yeah, in a nutshell. So that's kind of what it's about. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard. It's a book. There's some books you can reduce to a line and that my that book you can't <laughs> oh gosh I think the book goes back to like I don't know 2006 or something like that like my original notes on it um it was the third book that I'd written the first two uh were adult novels that both were agented but didn't sell um and then I had this crazy idea which I'd always had in the back of my mind I always used to say 
wouldn't it be cool if someone did like a YA retelling of Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market? And that was what was in my head, you know? Um, and I tried to write that book for a few years and it was set in France and it was about these two sisters and they lived outside for, of the forest and they had these magical abilities, but it just didn't come together. <clears throat> it just wasn't, you know, I had all these notes, but like, and then one day I literally woke my husband up in the middle of the night and was like, what if I put Yiddish into my book? And he was like, now the thing is, I've done this before. Like I've woken my husband up in the middle of the night, like shooken him awake and been like, we have to change the dictionaries. And he'd be like, okay, you know, go back to sleep. Like, this is what writers dream about. Just go back to sleep, right? Like I've done that. <laughs> so he was just like, okay, go back to sleep. And I'm like, no, no, I really think I need to put Yiddish into my book. And that was this aha moment that led me down the path of like, what would that look like? And what if it was a shtetl? And what if this was a Jewish story? And what if the goblins were, you know, not just goblins, but a metaphor for anti-Semitism and that, that, that the hook-nosed, money-hungry creatures that they are, you know, are basically what they project onto other people, but really they're the, they're the ones who are that way, right? And, and all that other stuff started coming in and they're like, oh, this is a bigger story than I originally, it's not about two sisters in the French forest. <laughs> it's about it's about survival and it's a story of, you know, do you, can you become anything you need to be in order to survive? And, and all that stuff started happening when all of a sudden I was like, wait, pick the story up and move it to a different place in Europe, to a different time. And, and that's actually what I love about historical fantasy, right? Is that you can, you don't, it's not that you sacrifice historical accuracy, right? But you can take a historical moment in time and say, but what if it happened this way? Or, but what if there was magic, right? Mm. And you have the ability to kind of pull on historical elements, which help you ground the book into like a real world with real fears and real issues and real concerns, right? But then you're like, but with magic, <laughs> um, you know, right? And so I think that that's kind of how it all came to be. Um, and I think it's such an interesting thing when you look back at that, because it's like, until I figured out where it needed to be set, I didn't know it at all. And then it all, and sometimes it is that one little thing that you're like, you change a name or you change a place or that one key that then all of a sudden opens the floodgates of like, now I know what this book is. Yes. That reminds me of something that Lainey Taylor calls the snick. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, um, her not for robots blog. She wrote this blog called not for robots and it's all about writing and the way that she writes, the way that she brainstorms ideas and stuff. And she said that you when you're brainstorming ideas or when you're waiting for a book to come together, you have to wait for the snick, like this feeling of things just clicking together. It's like sliding two puzzle pieces together and they just fit perfectly. You don't have to force anything. Um, I love that story because I think it's it speaks to a couple of different things to me. Firstly, the the thing of sometimes an idea has takes a long time to kind of percolate or um, to, it's, it's almost like waiting for a soup to be ready to like for all the flavors, all the things to come together in the back of your mind. Um, and that I love that you first got the idea in 2006. And when did you, when did the Yiddish element come in? Like how many years did it take for that to pop the book into was your published mind? in 2018? So let's say it was sold in 2016, right. In publishing speak. Mm -hmm. Um, and so probably, yeah, probably like 2015, 2014, once I started writing the book, once I figured that mm -hmm. out, it took about a year to, okay. and that's what I call yeah. about like really writing the book. Right. But mm -hmm. I'd had a lot of pieces of it 
in, in folders, you know, when I have a yeah. scene, when a scene comes to me, I get it down. Um, oh, okay. That's what I do. So I very often have a lot of random shit on my computer, <laughs> but like when something comes to me, I get it down because I never know when that's going to be important later or another piece of something, or maybe it's a piece of, you know, and so I'd, I'd, whenever I'd have a like goblin market YA idea, I'd put it down, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely, I definitely started writing pieces of it that far back. Um, but yeah, about a year, it takes me about a year once I know what I'm writing, once I figure out the plot, but I, I love that mm-hmm. Liney Taylor quote. I love Liney Taylor. First of all, I love her mm-hmm. writing. I love everything yes. about, you know, yes. Um, we are all obsessed with her <laughs> in this <laughs> corner of the world. <laughs> um, I actually was, I really got to meet her um, and be on a panel with her in 2018 when things oh were gosh. better and Book Expo was still happening. Remember those days? <laughs> yes, those days. So, um, so yeah, I was on a panel with her, Naomi Novik, and it was like, I was, I was not okay. <laughs> I was just like, wow. I'm like, is it okay if I pinch both of you? Because <laughs> I just want to make sure you're real <laughs> and that I'm sitting here with you. Because um, I'm such uh, a huge fan of both of their work. And obviously there's a lot of similarities. Um, yeah. You know, with me and Naomi Novik, at least, I'd love to think that there were similarities between me and Lainey Taylor. I'm not so I sure. Can, She's, I can see Yes, that. there are. <laughs> there definitely sure. are. Yeah. She's, um, but anyway, I didn't know she had a blog and stuff like that. That's really cool. And I love that idea sure. of the SNCC. Yeah. So you've spent all of this time sort of gathering elements um, and ingredients for this book. And then you finally have this sort of SNCC that happens. Um, I just want to ask you one more question about the idea and the conception. Are you patient while this idea gathering and ingredient gathering happens like (laughs) emotionally as as a creator (laughs) what's going on with you because um that's a long time to be gathering pieces and waiting for the thing to sort of land yeah so so emotion I don't know any other way to do it I wish I wish it wasn't my process um like I'm writing a book right now I don't I don't know what my next thing is going to be I have a, a novel in verse out on submission. It hasn't sold yet. I love it with all of my heart. I hope it sells. Um, but I've moved on as we, as we do, right? To the next thing, because you can't obsess about the thing that's on submission. You've got to move on to the next thing. I also love that we all have more, more than one book out, you know? So that's a great, it's a great conversation to be having with, you know, people who I think are in like similar pace, places in their careers in terms of like what we published or what we are going to publish or, you know, um, and, uh, and so right now I'm happy to talk about it. I'm writing a book about a magical flying dollhouse and I'm really excited about it. Like I'm totally geeked out about this book and it's about a Jewish family and there's different artifacts in the house, like the, the samovar that is magic and the actual whole dollhouse is magic. And, and um, uh, you know, one, one family member is described this way because they have a story and the lace from the curtains is from her wedding veil. And it's a story of her wedding, you know, and there's like all these stories in it. And I'm just like, I know everything. I know the whole story from beginning to end and I'm 27,000 words in and I'm so impatient. I cannot, like, I want to know that I'm done with this already because I love it so much and it's all in my head, but I can't write more than like a thousand words a day. Like I, I can't do it. I physically can't. Some days I write 200 words and some days I write a thousand and some days maybe I can do 1500, but I, I just can't write more than that a day. And so, yeah, I'm really impatient right now because I also write all over the place. Um, like I write a chapter and then I write that last page and then I write the third chapter because I have all these scenes in my head I need to get down. And the hard part is then, okay, well now there's this critical mass of 27,000 words. Now I've got to like put it in order and make it into a story. You know, like it's all here. I have 
a basic meandering plot. Now what? And so that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I'm very frustrated, but I also really have learned over the years to trust my process. Um, and like, what happens is like, what happened yesterday, I was like, worked on a chapter halfway through, worked on a chapter a third of the way through. And then all of a sudden I knew the last page. And I sat down and I wrote the last page. And I know that's my last page, right? Like I knew it, it was, it was like, and, and it even happened with Sisters of the Winter Wood. I didn't know the first page in that book. I wrote that whole book. And then like, it was all done and it was edited with my editor and, and, and then all of a sudden I realized what the first page needed to be. And then I wrote the first page. So like, uh, that's so I just cool. have to trust my own process. That, so it's very frustrating when I'm in it, but, but I also know that I can't rush the, I can't rush it or the magic won't happen. Yeah. It's hard to live so in that space. I hate that space. Yes, totally. I live in that space permanently too and it's it's this push and pull of like I love it because I love the magic but also get really frustrated but take us back to so when you were drafting so you have this you finally have this snick this idea that brings the sisters of the winterwood together with this new setting and um weaving in the Yiddish and the Jewish folklore and so how do you how did you go about drafting it were you writing a thousand words a day do you like how do you how do you set about drafting a book when you, when you decide so, you have everything? Yeah. I mean, in general, like I would say that sometimes every book is different and sometimes there are things that are the same. What do I mean? Like, I think that the first book I ever wrote, which never sold, I sat down and I wrote a thousand words a day. It was like, it was NaNoWriMo. It was one of the first years of NaNoWriMo. And I was like, I'm just going to write a book all the way through. And that was how I had to do it. You know, and every day I went back, I read the first, the last page I'd written, and then I just wrote the next page. And then I'd read 500 words back and then write the next page. And, and that was how I wrote my first book. Of course, it was revised 17 million times and still never sold. And it was rewritten many times after that. But um, so my second book, though, was more like I was writing in two timelines, which is also a book that never saw, saw the light of day. So I was kind of writing one and then one and then one and then one. Or, or then I, I think I separated at some point and wrote one whole story and then the other whole story and then I combined them so that was also but like it, I do remember writing that more um like uh, with a you know what's the word sorry blah um consequentially no linear in order linear. Linear. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was something that I was writing more linearly um mm. Sisters of the Winter Wood uh, was the first book that I guess I sort of wrote in the way that I'm writing now, which is sort of all over the place. I'd have an idea, I'd have a scene, I'd get it down and have an idea, I'd have a scene and get it down. But part of that was also the historical research. So like, I'd say stage one of that book, once I figured out I wanted it to be Yiddish, or whatever, was figuring out where is it going to be set, but not just where, exactly where, what are the maps of the town? What were the entrances? What, how far back in the historical record can I go to figure out like where would things have been? Where was the church? Where were the synagogue? Where was the Jewish quarter? Where do the people live? What were their professions, right? Like I've got to like people that is, and also then the forest, what are the trees? What are the plants? What is the foliage? Were the forests different, you know, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, how did they change? Like so much research. And then also family research, because I knew I wanted to base it on my mother's father, my mother's father's family. And so I was like, what's their story? And so thank God I was able to find a book that was called the Yisker book. There are many Jewish communities that were destroyed in the Holocaust that um, 
there afterwards, the survivors from that town created a book called a Yisker book. There are many of them. Um, they're in libraries. And I found the Dubasar, Dubasari Yisker book online translated into English from Yiddish. I don't know how, don't ask me how it was there. Not all of them, most of them are not. And it was there in its entirety. And so then I had, now it, that was like 1930s, 1940, a lot of the stories, but there were also stories about their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And I was able to piece together the town. I had the research I needed. I had the material I needed. Now, you know, it wouldn't have worked with like my Light of the Midnight Star as my, my second book, because that's something like, it's not like the 1400s. Like there's no, that doesn't exist. And because I was only a hundred years ago, there were still first person I was able to get that testimony. And, to, and so then I started to base, I thought it was a tribute actually to the people of the town. I started to base all my characters on real people that once lived there, not with the same names, but if they're there, the band, you know, it's based on the band that was once in the town and, <clears throat> you know, a so-and-so the peddler and so-and-so the this, and the, they're based on real people. These real people lived in the town and had a different name, but existed. And that also felt just like so authentic but I was so lucky to be able to find that kind of level of detail of information. Um, and so that was like a big part of like, how do I write this book? You know, and then as I found more historical pieces, basically I found out the town of Dubasari, the pogrom that came to the town, um, the, the Jews of the town fought back. And that was when I was like, okay, okay, this is my story too, right? I didn't think that my goblin market YA was gonna be a story of resistance, but it was. And so all of that, I think I was just writing throughout, but it was a process of discovery. And that happens both with the writing, with the like not knowing what path your characters are gonna take. And then also with the historical research for me, for me, they're like one, they're, they're just, they're one and the same. And also the, the third level, I guess, of all of that is the, the mythology and folklore, um, you know, and which is not just mythology and folklore of Judaism, but also of the place, right? What, what are the, and there's a lot of Baron Swan mythology and folklore in, in Ukraine and Moldova, right? And so that also was like, it felt natural and it felt right. And so then I looked into what are the fairy tales of Ukraine and what are the fairy tales of Moldova and what are the ones that involve like swans and bears and how do I bring that in too? Um, and so it's just like a process of finding all these different pieces and then, and then putting them together that it's just constantly writing and rewriting or writing random scenes and then writing them as they come to me, you know, and, and somehow eventually it all comes together. And then I've got to edit it 17 million times <laughs> as we all do. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so let me just clarify. So are you, when you're drafting, um, you're doing research concurrently. So you're, you're writing and doing research and kind of going back and forth between the two. Yeah. Like right okay. now, so the magical dollhouse story, I know the plot, I know the characters, I know what's going to happen. But I'm writing about kind of like a Jewish world of the dead, like underground, which is like Sheol, which we call Sheol. And it's, it's a, a Hebrew word. Um, and um, there's all these like Jewish, um, we call them Midrashim, that they're like commentators and stories and myths and legends around what this place looks like. And I'm just always reading more information about it and I'm always seeking. And every time I find something interesting, I'm like, oh, that's going in the book, you know, or, or you know, and so I'm right, but at the same time, I can't not write that chapter. So I'll write the chapter, but I know that I'm going to still be doing research as I go to like flesh it out and find out more. And, and same thing with a lot of the like magical items, like the samovar, like whatever those things. So like, as I want to write the story, but I also want it to be based on something real. Like, is there, like, I think that when you're writing also like 
um, something that's either historically based or very strongly um, uh, set in a place, right? Then you need to make sure that what you're doing makes sense. So like, I, I can't write a story set in Odessa if I haven't read enough about the city to know whether there's any resonance to the symbols I'm using, right? Like if I'm gonna be talking about a swan in Odessa, are there any fairy and folk tales about swans in Odessa? Because if, if there are, I need to make sure I'm referencing that because it would be weird not to. And so like, those are the questions I ask myself too. Like if I'm gonna talk about, you know, uh, um, at Serena's wedding and there's a special wedding veil, where would it have been? Would it have been at the Winter Palace? Would they have attended? Have any Jews ever attended the Winter Palace? Like I fall down these rabbit holes, but they're important rabbit holes, I feel, for the authenticity of what I'm trying to do. Um, and so like, there's a lot of questions or like a samovar, is there a fairy or folktale about a never ending samovar that continues to just give um, tea, right? And, and if there is, then I need to make sure I'm referencing it or not referencing it because otherwise, like addressing it in my writing, because otherwise it's like, well, I wrote, I created this. I don't want to just create my own individual fairy tales. I want to build off what's out there. And that's what I did with Sisters in the Winterwood. And that is also what I did with Light of the Midnight Stars, right? I like taking the stories that are there and, and bringing them to life and fleshing them out. It's, it's more than just a fairy tale retelling very often, because there's a lot of elements of mythology and folklore that are brought to life. It's not just retelling Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market. It also touches on swan mythology and bear mythology and folklore, you know? Um, so that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I feel like I'm always just doing more research. I didn't write fantasy for a lot of years. My first novel was not fantasy at all, the one that never got published. And the second one that never got published was dabbling with fantasy, but it was really more straight historical, but it had like elements of fantasy. And then Sisters of the Winter Wood, I just let it go. I was like, I'm writing fantasy. Um, and I think it came though from me being a lifelong reader and lover of fairy tales and fantasy from a very young age and having a lot of respect for what came before me and a lot of just like obsession and love for what came before me. And I had so many hundreds of fantasy books in my room as a kid, as an adult. I was, it took me a long time to be ready to be like, and now I can add my voice. And I wasn't ready. For a lot of years, I wasn't ready because I didn't think that I had anything to say and I didn't think I had anything to add. And I was like, what can I possibly do that hasn't already been done? It's actually a danger of reading too much in the genre because you can be paralyzed by it, right? <laughs> like, um, <clears throat> but at the same time, how can you not, right? Like I always said at the beginning as an agent, at the beginning of like my agenting career it was towards the end of like the vampire werewolf love triangle phase and craze, which I wish would come back to be honest, but okay, like, you know, um, maybe slowly, slowly it's coming back. But anyway, um, I sold a vampire werewolf love triangle series at a time when nobody was buying them because I knew it was fresh and different because I had read hundreds of vampire and werewolf stories and I knew. And right, so I have to do that as an agent. That's it's part of my job too to know is this fresh, right? But as a reader and a writer, I wasn't ready until all of a sudden I knew. And that was also that Yiddish, that snick, that moment, right? It was like, this is what I can add. And until then, it, that story wasn't ready. None of my stories were ready. And I, I don't know, I like, I was, maybe I was afraid to make it too Jewish. Maybe I hadn't made the connection in my head. Maybe I haven't figured out how to do it, you know? Um, and so, so I think that maybe why I do what I do, that I'm constantly interrogating what else is out there and am I talking about it in the right way? And am I giving a nod to what came before is because of that. Because I was like, I didn't write fantasy until I was ready to write fantasy, until I knew what I, what I had to say and what I could add. Um, and so 
Um, at the same time, like, I don't know, I think that that is the world we live in. Like, I can't do sites like TV tropes. I know that some writers use that to help them. I'm like, my brain explodes. Like, I'm like, I can't handle that many plots all at once, you know? Um, so like, and I'm not a huge TV watcher. Like, I have to force myself to like, get on Netflix and watch something just so that I culturally know people are talking about manifest shit. What's manifest? All right, fine. If it's going to be a comp, I have to know what it is. I'll watch a couple episodes, but like, I don't have time. I'm a reader and a writer. I, and I wish I had time for TV, but I don't. Um, so I don't know if I take it from that as much, but like, I definitely take it from books and just now. So like one of the things that I'm writing in the current book, I know we are supposed to be talking about Sisters in the Winter Wood and I keep talking about the book I'm writing right now, but isn't that the way it is? It's like our heads. That's fine. Come, right. <laughs> um, so I was, I was remembering a story where a girl held a golden chain to go down into like hell or a dungeon or a cave or something. And I couldn't, I knew I'd read this in a book in a fairy tale. I couldn't find it online. Of course, I took to Twitter and in three seconds, we solved the problem. Apparently it's from George MacDonald's book, um, one of, of his fairy tales. And I think it was even like Terry Windling who knew it right away, but somebody knew it right away. And I was like, I love this, like the things I love about Twitter, right? Like, um, and I'd read that book and that's, it was in my head, but I didn't remember where it was from. And now I'm like, great, like, I'm so excited I found it because now I can engage with it. Now I can figure out, okay, what part of the story is my story? What part of it am I, am I making it completely my own? But just the fact that I know the original idea, or at least whatever I could find of it, um, just makes me feel more confident and being like, okay, I'm going to add my voice in this exact way or in a different way. Like that is exactly what it is. And it doesn't mean it has to be someone else's process, but it's definitely my process. And I think it comes from that, from that, like, I don't know what I can add. I have so much awe and respect for all fantasy writers out there, you know? Um, and so that's just, I don't know. I think I always have to engage with that because that's where I came to fantasy writing from. Like I was scared to, to, to say I'm a fantasy writer too, you know? Mm. Yeah, I relate to that. <laughs> Yeah, that's beautifully said and so definitely relatable. And it's it's in, it's interesting too just while you're talking I just was thinking about how nothing is original and yet because we all write our own stuff and it all becomes original and and um I'm glad that you decided to jump onto that shelf as a fantasy writer. I'm very glad that you did because reading the Sisters of the Winter Wood, it is one of those books where every single element I'm aware while I'm reading, oh, this, this, I could research this one little thing and just fall down a hole and see and guess, you know, where Rena pulled all of these things, these things from. Um, and that's what makes it just, just so rich and so wonderful. So that whole like originality versus is it unique, that struggle that I think a every writer struggles with or, or thinks about sometimes about, yeah, adding their own, um, their own, like, do I belong on this shelf? Do I have something to add? Um, it just, I'm so glad that, that, um, that you added your voice because it's so needed. Yeah, me too. And I also yeah. wanted to ask you, know, this is kind of going back to the, the idea thing and that the idea that you had of adding Yiddish to your book. Um, but is it, was it scary for you to write something that was so personal to you and that is so much a part of your family's history and a part of a really painful history? I think it was harder. Light of the Midnight Stars was harder. Um, 
yeah, because it's a bleaker book, but I know we're talking about Sisters of the Winter Wood here. Um, so I, so Sisters of the Winter Wood, one of the, one of the other methodologies that went into writing it was that it's written in two voices, one in prose and one in poetry. And um, as an Asian, I represent a ton of novels and verse, and I sold three adult poetry collections this year. I'm really proud of that. Um, That's amazing. So like Harper Collins, Penguin, like <gasps> not small presses. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Um, yeah. So like, I love working with poetry. I studied poetry in university. I didn't want to take fiction in university. I couldn't deal with like the MFA thing, <laughs> the critique groups, critique my poetry all you want. I will agree that my poetry needs help, you know, but like I couldn't do the fiction thing. And so I, I studied um, non nonfiction and poetry, which in the end, I think really worked in my favor because um, I ended up getting a master's degree in history and and then I had a degree in poetry. And if you look at my work, you're like, oh, that makes total sense, right? Yeah. Yes, so, um, yeah. And so I think that Sisters of the Winter would also had that because I heard their voices in a different way. We talk about differentiating voice. Um, and there's a lot of different tricks and ways to do it. But for me, it was like, I heard Leia's voice um, you know, almost like Peter and the Wolf. There's, there's like, uh, you know, the famous, right, orchestral. Yeah. So she was like the clarinet and Leva was like, you know, the tuba or a, a bassoon or something, you know, deeper and more lumbering. And I heard their voices that way. And the most obvious way for me to represent that on the page was to do Leia in verse and Leva in prose, because then it was also just like a physical difference on the page. Um, and that went back and forth from verse to not verse, from verse to not verse. I can't even, even when we sold it, one publisher wanted it all in prose and another publisher wanted to keep it the way it is. And it was like a big question as to whether the truth is I was really proud to put that out into the world because there's so little um, adult verse out there, right? And not poetry, I mean, novels in verse. And nobody does it in fantasy in the adult space, you know? Um, and it's really a shame. Whereas in middle grade and YA, it's like a burgeoning, burgeoning field with incredible award winners. Um, constantly every year, right? The biggest awards, there's very often at least one novel and verse in that mix. I went to a panel on speculative poetry, fantasy and poetry, right? Like 10, 12 years ago. And I was still thinking about that years later. And I was mm -hmm. like, and this is how I add my voice, right? Mm -hmm. um, so everything is connected to everything else. I think the question is always like, how do you put it together in a way that nobody else can. Like people say, why well, are you afraid to talk about your magical flying dollhouse idea in a podcast that people might hear? And I'm like, no, I've never been afraid of any of my ideas that anybody would steal them because they're so completely uniquely me that only I could put this madness together in my head and make it make sense. I want to steer you back into this um, speculative poetry idea for, for just a minute. Um, Haley also writes in verse. I do not. I am not. I don't have that. I think, well, okay. <clears throat> I maybe could, but I just don't. I, it's not, um, I don't have that poetry gene, I don't think. But I am curious about, and maybe both of you could answer, but I just am, I'm so fascinated by um, using speculative fiction in particular with, with verse and poetry. What does that, what's the significance there? Like, what is it, what can poetry do for a speculative story or a speculative, even just like slice that, um, that just is underrepresented and that's so, uh, this is punny, but like so magical. 
first of all, I think that like change in the industry has to come slowly, <clears throat> you know, and you do it one book at a time and you do it by <clears throat> finding a book that kind of defies genre or, you know, is so spectacularly good that it's undeniable. And you, of course you need an agent who is willing to take a chance on that because it's not an obvious sell. It's not something that, you know, but at the same time, even with all of that, I think that you always need people who are like trailblazers, who are the ones to go first and say, here, I'm putting this down on the page, you know, and, and then if one book does well that way, then the next author might not be afraid to follow suit, right? Um, but, but the larger question about why verse and, and speculative, first of all, I think that most of the, if you think back to like some of the greatest, greatest poets of all time, right? But and I mean that cross-culturally, right? There's always an element of magic in poetry. There's always an element of, <clears throat> I see a thing that nobody else sees. I see this in a way that nobody else sees it. Um, I see in this crayon a bird. I see in this pencil, uh, you know, um, and, and, and so the imagery that poetry has in it naturally lends itself to um, larger imaginings, right? Like, and, and there are so many, poems and ballads that were stories of myths and legends. Like it's not, it's almost a lost art that we're trying to recover. We've just, we, once upon a time, this is how people did tell stories. They told them in ways that could be recited and a, the way a bard would tell a story, a ballad, a, right? I mean, I'll go back to the Odyssey, right? Like, you know, Homer, it, it goes, it's well, well, it's, it's a history of hundreds of years. It's well, much longer and older than we are. And somehow, we've evolved into a society that reads novels, right? And, and, and that doesn't write epic stories in verse anymore, but there's no reason why we shouldn't and why we can't. So to me, it's only natural. And, and the connection of the speculative, you know, and the poetry, I think is also only natural. I think that poets are fantasy writers at heart to a certain degree, because even if you're writing about the bird outside your window, you're seeing it in a different way than other people see it. Your, the similes, the metaphors that are used in poetry are, there's something of the fantastic to it. And I also think that part of it goes to like how you hear a voice in the story, right? And for me, mm -hmm. this, this character's voice was, was in, it was no other way to write it. Um, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't do the same thing in prose. You'd have poetic prose versus less poetic prose, right? But for me, that was how I saw it, but I, I was a poet first. Um, in Light of the Midnight Stars, I had one of my characters I was going to write in verse, and that went back and forth and back and forth. So there's also always a figuring out of it as you go along as to like, you're constantly interrogating yourself. Is this the right format or is it a gimmick? You know, and is this the right way for me to put this on the page or can I do it differently? And like I said, I have versions of Sisters of the Winter Wood where it's all prose. Like, I, and I have versions where it was all poetry, you know, and I, but like sometimes, I don't know for other people, but the process of revising is more important than the process of writing your first draft, which is so hard to read when you're writing your first draft because you're dying when you're writing your first draft, right? You're just like, but then when it's done, you feel it's it's almost worse because then you're like, no, I have to start all over again and again. And yeah, again. now the and real work begins. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so funny because the hardest thing is getting it all down and then the hardest thing is revising it 22 times. So like, there's nothing easy about it ever, right? Except that we do it <laughs> because we love it. I think that like it gets refined with every time you go through it and and then it comes out as to like what is the right way for this to be so my character ended up not being all in verse in light of the midnight stars but as she has her story kind of falls apart and her life kind of falls apart 
she disintegrates into verse. And that oh, for me wow. was a fun way to play with it too. That's and that so was a lot of like interrogating, how do I show this on the page? She's falling apart and she's stuttering apart. And I want to show that physically. Mm. And I may write another book where there's, you know, no verse, right? But I, to me, it's always an option because, because I was a poet first. Okay, so let's go back to, well, let's go forward into revising. So you said that you, you revised this book 17 million times. <laughs> Um, so what does your revision process look like when you sit down? You've got the horrible first draft. What are you doing when you think, okay, I need to revise this book? How, how do you go about it? Like there's always different stages of it, right? Because we all go through process of revision before our agent or editor even sees it, right? So there's like that level of revision. And then there's like sometimes a level of revision with your agent. And then sometimes there's a level of revision with your editor, which can either be big things or small things or a combination of all of that, right? So there's always different processes, but my own internal revision process, a lot of times it's just like, keep trying to figure out what is the heart of the story. And so I, I'll finish writing something and then I'll start from the beginning again, reading it and editing it as I go, right? And very often I'll get to the end and I'll be like, okay, the text is all there, the story is all there, but it's missing something. Um, and I, I very often find myself like, when there's more than one voice in the story, taking it apart, having one whole voice here and one whole voice there, and then going through all of that and then going through all that and then figuring out how do I put them back together or for a story that has different timelines. Like I'm always slicing my stuff up and putting it back together again. Um, and it's really hard <laughs> and I don't know why I do it that way, but like, uh, so I feel like most of my work in revision isn't necessarily like obsessing over a line. It's more this kind of like, I'm constantly looking at the whole thing as a whole and then slicing it apart and then putting it back together again. And is this the best order? And does this make the most sense? And, um, and then I'll get an idea like, oh, what if I made it more spooky? And so then I'll start from the beginning again and like put flesh, it's almost like a painting. That's the best way to, right? Like you put on the background and that's basically your first draft. It's like, it's blue-ish, <laughs> right? And then you're like, oh, but they're gonna be palm trees. And oh, but they're, and as you keep adding layers of revision on, then you finally get to the point that you're like, now everybody can see that it was a beach scene in my head. It took a really long time to get there, right? Um, and, and so like, I think that that's what my process looks like the most is like, it's a lot of overhauling the whole thing in the beginning. And then a lot of like, I want to do X and then taking that thread, like completely through the whole story um, and then starting all over again and doing the next thing. Um, and so like, I do a lot of that. Um, and then, then comes to other stages, right? Like if your editor gives you an 18 page edit letter, which I've gotten before, um, you know, very often I'll, I'll start with the easy things like, oh, that's easy to fix, fix. Oh, that's easy to fix, fix. Oh, that's easy to, and then you get to the bigger things that, you know, might consider the complete overhaul of the novel. Um, and then you've got to think harder about that. And then with those, you sit down and you're like, okay, I'm starting from the beginning and we're going to go through the whole book again. And sometimes you're going through the whole book again, just to make sure that a theme works or just to add more darkness here and there, or just to add, you know, a, a certain character trait to a character who's already there, but needs to be more like this or, you know. And so I think that so many layers of revision are completely reading your book all over again, completely rewriting it again, over and over and over and over again. Sometimes for very little things, sometimes for bigger things, you know, sometimes for reframing the whole story in, in, in a different story. Um, yeah, so now I'm like going to talk myself out of finishing this book I'm writing right now because it sounds like too much work. 
I want to clarify. I just want to clarify something. When you say you're slicing the novel apart and then putting it back together again, how do you do you do that digitally on your computer or are you printing it out and literally cutting it up and making <laughs> like having like the pieces all over the carpet? No. Or- I actually wish I did that. It'd be smart. I don't really have any large enough space in my house to do that, though. I do live in a very big house, which is full of a lot of a lot of books. Like every inch of wall space is full of books. Um, so I um, no, I've always worked digitally only. I do not write. Do either of you write like with a pen? If I do verse, especially, I will do with a pen first and then yeah, type it out. Like, you just wrote like a whole book in verse mm. with pen wow. and a notebook. So yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And, and I think you're both like younger than me or at least same age. So that's not like you grew up in a different generation. Like I'm the one who's <laughs> no. just been writing with a pen. <laughs> I, get, I get migraines. That's fine. Everyone at, has their process. That's true. <laughs> I get migraines from looking at screens. So mm. I just wrote by hand years ago and wow. the, the distraction of the internet. I mean, it's just. So. But Lindsay, you wrote your first book all by hand in one yeah. go, the first draft. Yep. I still wow. do. I, I still do. Yeah, I still write by hand probably probably like 40% of the time now rather than before it was like 80% of the time, I would say. But I instead of using a laptop, I have one of those word processors that just has like a screen this big. Mm. Um, again, just to avoid the screen. But I, I do like the tactile feeling of that. But anyway, you were saying, so you cut and you slice and dice digitally. Yeah, so it used to be in Word and that was a lot of cutting and pasting. It was like really not effective and efficient. I don't know if Scrivener didn't exist. I didn't know what it was, you know, but then over the years I discovered Scrivener. I don't know how, I heard people talking about it. You know, I finally took the plunge and that has literally changed my life (laughs) because it's so much more um, conducive to people who write all over the place and need to move stuff around a lot. Um, And also one of my clients um, actually has an amazing book um, coming out later this year. Um, her name is Liz Parker and it's, um, I think it's called in the shadow garden. I think that's what we're calling it now. She, um, is like my guru for, uh, for Scrivener, not to set anybody off to go bother Liz. That's not the point, but I have to give credit where credit is due. And she taught me that you could even like select text and then even see like three different voices on the screen simultaneously. So you could be like this chapter, this chapter, this chapter. Oh, what are each one of them doing? And then read each individual voice separately and edit it and then slice it all back together. And you didn't have to cut and paste and cut and paste and cut and paste. And also in terms of um, poetry and verse, I found I very often have clients send me their poetry manuscripts and I'm like, I need to put it into Scrivener. <laughs> I can't, you know, like I need to, I need to move stuff around and figure out what order these poems need to be in. And I can only do that in Scrivener. I need to see it. I love their corkboard function. I'm like not a Scrivener ad here right now, but it actually is really like for the way that I write and work. And I love that I can keep like notes down below in like a different folder, but they're right there if I need them. And um, it's just super, super functional. And so I, I write everything in Scrivener now. Um, and that was a huge change for me, actually. But I'm, I'm like, an, I'm still in awe that you use a pen and paper. That's amazing. I wish I could. I crossed too much out. I also find that my fingers work faster. Like I, I never need, I want my fingers to work faster and they work faster on a keyboard. I can get, I can write more faster and my brain and hands keep up together better on a page. I just get annoyed that I'm not be able, I can't write fast enough to keep up with my brain. Yeah. 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 I definitely get that feeling too, but I also, sometimes I feel like maybe the reason why I switched to notebook and pen is because I want to slow down. Like I want to force mm. myself to slow down. 
but I also love the feeling of your fingers flying across the keys and just like writing something really fast because sometimes it helps me to get over the fear of writing something bad Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. just the the resistance is just to write something really, really, really fast and not worry about how I say it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's often when you can let yourself go like that, that the best writing happens too. Mm -hmm. Like when I, when I feel, when it feels like pulling teeth, I know I should stop and like switch to a different part of the story because it should never Mm -hmm. feel like pulling teeth, you know? And it always does at some point, right? Like I'm always, but I love about furniture too. So I can be like, I can, I can make folders where I sort of write missing or needs more or add here. And then I go back and I tackle them one by one. And actually I find that that's like a lot for me, a better way of doing things than trying to force myself to write a scene that just isn't happening. It's silly like, oh, I'm stopping. I'm skipping that scene. We're putting a blank folder here. I will come back to it when I'm ready. And then one day I'll be in the shower and all of a sudden I'll know, you know, Um, and that's the magic again. That's what we love about that magic moment and waiting for it is worth waiting. Usually. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Okay. The time's going to pass anyway, so might as well. <laughs> well, let's talk about submission. Um, because you mentioned that you, you hadn't, that you'd had two books on submission prior to selling the Sisters of the Winterwood. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Okay. So yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So walk us through going on submission with the Scissors of the Winterwood and how that felt and yeah, and what happened. So um, I had a new agent. I, I had two previous agents, one who moved to companies and that was why I, like she wasn't, she was moving to a different role, um, like not being an agent, being like more in foreign rights or something else, you know? And so that was my first book that didn't sell though. It went to acquisitions twice, which is like, I always say like, it's one of the worst and the best things that could happen to you. Cause on the one hand, you know, you're good enough and you have what it takes. But on the other hand, it still didn't get bought. Like you got all the way there and you got the agent and it, got, it went to acquisitions and it was a no. So it's also like, it's one of the hardest things and also one of the best things, right? And so then I moved on by that point, I'd moved on to book two. I needed a new agent because my agent had left, you know, the company and wasn't working in the same role. Um, I got an agent for that book. We worked on it. It went to acquisitions <laughs> and it got rejected in acquisitions. <laughs> um, and so that was really hard again. Um, and then I started writing The Sisters of the Winterwood. And that agent, who's still a really good friend of mine and a great person, wasn't as into YA, wasn't excited by the idea. And I was just like, I think I need a new fresh start. And so I looked for someone who kind of did maybe YA and adult or even was more in the kid lit space. The book ended up being published as adult. It, it, it's a YA crossover, but it was published by Orbit. Um, but at the time, that's what I thought it was. And it is about two sisters who are 15 and 17. Um, and that was never changed, you know, when it, when it was ended up being bought by an adult house. And my new agent loved the first book I had written which I completely rewrote at that point, like seven more times and had sections that were in verse, et cetera, et cetera. He took that on. We tried to sell it. Um, but he knew at that point that I was working on sisters because I was looking for someone who was excited about the next thing I was going to do. And so then we went on submission and it didn't sell in the first round of submission. And that was, we were trying some YA editors more. Um, but my agent, even on that very first round of submission was like, I think we should try some adult houses too. And I was like, why? It's YA. Like, that's definitely what I wrote. Um, And it ended up with multiple offers from adult houses and no offers from anybody in YA, um, which is like so interesting, right? 
Yeah. Um, it is. It, but it took about nine months to sell. It wasn't a fast sell. It wasn't an overnight sale. And at that point I was in the industry, I was in the business that I really say, people say, did that help you? Do you know, do you, I did not help me. <laughs> I was in the business and in the industry <laughs> and I still had to go through 10 years of hell to get my first book published. There are no shortcuts. But like emotionally, did it help to like see to know how, how the sausage is made <laughs> kind of yeah, like to know the background? Yes. and No, like I said, cause then you're also in that place of like, why am I not good enough? Why is mine not sold? Right. And it's hard mm-hmm. to be in that place of like, I see other agents around me getting deals. Why am I mm-hmm. not, you know, and am I deluding mm-hmm. myself? And is it just not good enough? Am I not good enough? And am I burning my relationships with people? Cause they're reading my words and thinking, Oh, she's really not a good writer. Oh, she's a great agent. You know, like so many of those thought bubbles that we all have, like all those gremlins in the mind <laughs> on the one hand, it's easier. On the other hand, it's harder. On the one hand, going to acquisitions is amazing. Getting rejected at acquisitions is really, really hard. And people might say, well, I never got that far. And I'm like, yes, but it doesn't make it any easier because <laughs> you still end up without a book. I also took me 130 agents to find my first agent. So I also, wow. I was like, I have lived in those touring, querying trenches. I know what it feels like to be, you know, and with my second agent and third agent, it was not that process, but I, cause I'd already had books that had gone to acquisitions. I'd already, yes, I was more in the industry, but I also find that it's much easier to get your second agent. It's the hardest thing is getting that first agent. I don't know why it's true, but it's true because agents are more likely to take someone on who's already been agented because you're coming with a more polished thing. I, I don't know the answer, but I've switched agents too. And I found I was much more discerning with who I wanted to work with the second right. time around. And I've even said, okay, if, if my current agent and I need to part ways for whatever reason, there's really only one other, maybe two other agents that I know of that I feel like we would work well together, like just based on what I know that I need and what they represent. And when I first look, when I looked for my first agent, I was like, oh, here's 30 agents I would love to work with. And now I just, I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> so maybe that's part of it yeah. too, is you just know exactly what you need in because you have experience right Mm -hmm. what you're looking for and sometimes it's like I said but both of my breaking up with my previous two agents had very little to do with um us getting into some kind of argument or things you know or or, or them not being communicative or all the things that I think a lot of people leave their agents for it was like one literally left and didn't take any of her clients with her you know and for a legit reason to be in a different publishing department she couldn't have taken us with her you know um, and the other one, because we didn't see eye to eye on a project because he doesn't represent really in that genre, you know? And so that was all of a sudden, cause we change as writers, right? Like I even changed as an agent. I never done nonfiction before ever. And I'm in the process this week of selling a nonfiction book. So like that, that wow. happens, you know, you yeah. change as a writer, you change as an agent, you change in your career. And so sometimes what you need in the beginning or for a certain book is not what you need for a different book that happens too, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally hear you. Cause like, if I were to ever look for another agent again, and I'm never planning on going anywhere cause I love my agent so much. And I'm not just saying that in case he hears this, it's true. Like, um, <laughs> I would be very picky about who I would go to next. Yeah, it's true. So you finally, finally, after nine months, there's, I, I didn't mean to say finally so loud. <laughs> nine months is a great submission time, but, um, so you sell it and hooray and it's your debut and it's so exciting and after um after all the near misses 
of submission and acquisitions and coming so close, it finally happens. And so then how do you feel? And how do you feel about like, what kind of work is ahead of you after you sell it? I think that was my first book. <clears throat> I was just so excited that it sold. Um, my agent called me out of the blue. And I remember having this moment where I was like, friend is calling me. Should I pick up? Why is he calling me? And then like, you're an idiot, pick up the phone. <laughs> right? like, <laughs> so I picked up the phone and he just, he had an offer. We had no, no, no advance warning. It came out of nowhere. He didn't, we didn't, we hadn't gotten an email saying I'm taking this to acquisitions or I'm reading and loving it. Bam offer. So it came wow. out of nowhere. It was really crazy. He called me and then I ended up, you know, with another offer too. And, um, I just right away was like, I went to shock. I was like pacing around my house. I couldn't, I couldn't stop moving. I was like, it was this crazy thing. But I also think I was in a place that I was like, I will do anything to get this book published. I will make any change. I will, you know, and I attacked that ad letter and it wasn't easy, but I was just like, I was in a very different headspace of like, whatever it takes, I will do whatever it takes. I've waited so long for this moment, you know? Um, and so I don't remember the edits for Sisters of the Winter Word being too horrible. Light of the Midnight Stars, on the other hand, was a really difficult process. And everybody has their second book stories, I feel like. Like most people have that story. So I had that story. It was really hard. It was really hard to, um, it was hard to write. It was hard to draft. It was hard to edit. It was hard to get right. Madden and I had a hard time seeing eye to eye on things. Um, and she's great. It just was like our visions weren't matching and it was written in two timelines in the modern day and in the past. And um, I ended up cutting 70,000 words from the book oh <laughs> and starting all over again. That's a whole like book. Yeah, I cut a book <laughs> from my book and started all over again. Um, and so I oh, feel like, wow. right, there's two different questions. It's like, what is it like with your first book coming out? And I feel like, I don't know, for the most part, my first book coming out was like, a fairy tale story. It was like, this has finally come true and everything is wonderful. And like, I don't remember even the pangs of birth. I don't even remember how many times and how miserable I was while I was editing it and how hard I, and I'm sure those moments were there. Right. But it was just more like, I just want a book in the world and my dream is finally coming true and I will do it. And my second book already was a very different story. And it's partly because I think you become more discerning about what is the story you wanted to tell. You stand on your ground a bit more, but also you have less of a, a time opportunity to cook your second book. Like the first book could have been cooking for 10 years, right? 2006 to 2016. Um, and, and the book that you write, which is usually your second book is very often written on contract, written in a space of a year or six months or nine months. And it, it doesn't have time to go through the process that you want it to go through. So it really depends on the book. I think that, I don't know, I had a really hard experience with my second book. I'm very grateful for it and I love it and it's everything I wanted it to be but it took a really long time to get there under pressure. And I also rewrote my book two multiple times, even after mm. like it was basically accepted even then, even when I was just still oh, doing wow. editing with my editor, it was, I just kept rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And like Sisters of the Winter Wood didn't really change that much. It was like, tighten this, mm. fix that, even though 18 pages worth of that. But mm. I don't think that the original draft I sold is that radically different from what ended up being published it's better, but it's not a different story. Whereas Light of the Midnight Star is like, I think I wrote, I probably the equivalent of like five different books and then just threw it out and started all over again. You know, same story, same characters, but like, how do I get at the heart of the story? And maybe yeah. it was just that more of those like major revisions happened with an editor under contract as opposed to 
Sisters of Winter Wood went through that before I found an editor, before I had an mm. agent, you know, yes, you don't have yeah. the space to do your own. You're writing to deadline to get done, but you don't have the space and time to rewrite it five times before you hand it in. <clears throat> I've never done that, but I imagine that it must be so difficult to send to your editor. Yeah. Something that you feel is less rough than draft, like yeah. a, basically a first draft that you would normally yeah. never show anyone. Exactly. Yeah. That must be really hard. <laughs> so it's so like, so book one and book two are two very different experiences. Now I'm actually like kind of reveling in the fact that I have nothing new sold, even though I'd love to know when I had another book coming out. It's also very freeing and I'm kind of enjoying it. It's kind of fun to just like not write to deadline right now and, and, and yeah. be free to like write the scene as it comes to me and not, you know, um, be under any kind of time pressure. I'm kind of enjoying that. And I would say also to anybody listening, if you're a writer, it's important to give yourself that time, right? Like um, there's a lot of pressure once you have a book published that you're going to put out a book a year or, you know, if, and you're not going to stay relevant if you don't or, and like a book a year is really hard to do. Like that kind of process is very stressful. And, and it doesn't mean, I mean, if it works for you, great, right? But I think that we very often forget to give ourselves grace or to give ourselves space and time and to know that you're not going to make yourself irrelevant if it takes you three years to write your next book. And that's okay too. Yeah, exactly. These things take time. And and going back to that idea of the the magic, like the whole point of it is that you can't control it. it. It happens when it happens. And it's like this weird paradoxical thing where you have to almost completely let go of it in order for it to happen. So when you're clinging really hard and you're trying to kind of grind things out, at least this is how I feel, nothing comes and things don't really mm-hmm. click and I don't get that snick and I don't feel the magic. And then it's like, why am I doing this? Cause it's painful and it's awful and I'm not mm. enjoying it. And there's no pleasure. There's no joy. It's all just like, it feels like a chore, you know? Yeah. 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 And you don't mind it when you're like just filling in a bit here and a bit there, but you do mind it when you've got to write large swaths of things with a deadline and you're just like, I don't know what words are anymore. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah I really I love that point when I get to the end and I'm like okay there's only five chapters missing great now I will go back and and all of a sudden you have so much energy because you're like I can tackle five chapters you know whereas up until then it was just like staring into the abyss of this uncompleted novel Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know months and months and months yeah yes exactly I that is so relatable that exact is exactly how I feel usually in the middle I'm completely hopeless. Like I'm completely despairing about everything. And then as I get to the end, it is, you get this surge of like, oh, I'm actually going to finish this thing. Right. <laughs> right. Like the end is near. I can see the finish line. Yeah. I've got to yes. get to that with this book, but with sisters of the winter wood, that never really happened. It was organic. I, I got through it. I wrote it. It was wonderful. I did a lot of revising, but I enjoyed the revising. I, I'm, I love that book. I love everything about it. I'm so proud of it. Um, yeah, my, my second book was a lot more fraught. I love it too, but it took a lot. I, don't, I never forgot the pain of, that it took to get there, <laughs> but it is a darker book. It's a darker book with darker themes. So maybe that also is reflected mm-hmm. in the agony I was feeling as I was, am I ever going to have a second book out of the world, right? Is this going to happen? Am I just a one hit wonder? so hard second books are hard you know yeah so do you think you'll ever sell if you have the option to would you sell a a book in a two book deal again or would you I don't know I go back and forth about it all the time to be honest um 
for a while I was like, I'm never selling another two book deal again. Right. But then I don't know, we, we get greedy as authors, I think. Yeah. You know, somebody offers you <laughs> someone offers. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, hard to and, turn that down. Exactly. Right. So, and I'm also really grateful that it forced me to write a second book and that I didn't have this, like, I only have one book sold. I have to write a whole another book in order to get another book sold. And what if it's never good enough? And you can also fall into that. I was very lucky that I had, I knew a second book was going to come out. I mean, assuming that I got it to the level it needed to be and publishable and whatever. Um, some people, it takes them years to get their second book out, even though it's under contract. Like it's a lot of stories, like authors like that. The pressure is real. There's a lot of pressure on, on being like, a, you know, it's on the one hand a dream, but on the other hand, like creating under pressure, creating for money is a very different experience than just like writing books in a notebook or at your computer alone in the dark, right? It yeah. changes things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it really depends on what it is. Like this novel and verse that I wrote that's on submission now is about a historical figure. It's more just like straight historical fiction. And I would love to do a second book on a different character. And I have a character in mind too. So like I could see in that sense when I know exactly what I want to do for book two, that I'd be willing to sell two books. But the way I sold my first book with my second book, I'm so grateful to Orbit for taking a chance on me and all of that. But I wish I'd known what that book two was going to be before I made the commitment instead of like they just bought a second unspecified book. Um, so, you know, I think it depends yeah. on like, yeah that also makes a difference. If you know what your second book is going to be, your editor knows what your second book is going to be and everybody's already agreed upon it, then you can start yeah. right away working on it, right? Instead of this process of discovery of like, what is my second book going to be about? At the end of every episode, we usually ask our guests about a piece of writing advice and we just ask them to respond to it because it's just interesting for us to hear what writers who are actually working and out there kind of think about writing advice that's often out on the internet. So I pulled a very popular quote from Neil Gaiman. Um, okay, so he said, the main rule of writing is that if you do it with enough assurance and confidence, you're allowed to do whatever you like. What do you think of that? So when I first read this, I was like, I totally agree with that. Um, because I think that from an agenting perspective, what I look for is two things. One is I don't want to, it's not really authenticity, but it is something, there's something in the writing that is sometimes you can just very clearly see like who this person is, who's writing it as a writer, right? That their presence on the page and, um, and also the confidence in which they tell the story, especially when you're talking about like fantasy world or something like that, right? So like, that's super important. Like, um, can you make me believe that we are where we are in history, in even in the modern day, right? Are you a good enough storyteller that I believe that these people were real or are real or could have been real, right? So like, there's a lot of that. And, and that's just something that can't be taught very often. Sometimes it's the voice and sometimes it's the, the literary language or sometimes it's the way in which you put me into the story. Sometimes it's the way in which you enter into the narrative. Sometimes it's the way in which you write a character on the page, right? It could be a million different things. Um, and people say to me like, oh, what are you looking for as an agent or what do you want? Right. And for me, it's always like, I'm looking for that thing that I don't know what it is, but I'm going to read it and I'm going to see it and I'm going to know what it is. Right. And I never know. And I, I don't even like reading queries, to be honest. I like to just like read the words because if, if I'm swept away by the language and the words I'm in, you know, and you can tell that very often by the first page of the first paragraph, 
the first sentence usually. Um, and so on that note, I agree with this. Um, but I think that like, I'm not sure that we're allowed to do whatever we like um, or if we should, you know? And that's a bigger question, right? Like, I think you always have to ask yourself, is this, are you the right person to tell this story? And there's different answers to that depending on the type of story that you're trying to tell. And, you know, that gets into like, conversations of own voices and, and, and stuff like that. But also like, if you don't have the authority to tell a certain story, you shouldn't be telling it, you know, and you can do all the research in the world and still not be the right person to tell that story. Or you can do a tremendous amount of research and, and do it. You know, there are certainly masterworks of literature where somebody, you know, wrote about somebody other than them or different from them. And I think that like, they also have a part in our canon and we can't ignore, you know, those types of stories either but I think it really depends on what it is so like it's true but it's not true um yeah I think that I felt confident enough with Sisters of the Winterwood tie it back to my book right I felt confident enough that I could tell the story because my family came from that town because my grandfather fled the pogroms that almost happened there because the story of these people were the story of my grandfather and you know and then for me also coming to it as a historian building upon a sense of place and it enabled me to jump off and do my fantasy. Like I don't, I'm not a person who creates worlds out of nothing. I need the historical framework because I like to twist stories. I like to take myths and take them apart or change them or put them into different circumstance or, you know, rewrite fairy tales and, and make them my own. And I think that part of like rewriting history is very often like rewriting women into history because women were very often not a part of history, didn't, didn't have the literacy to be able to write their own stories, didn't have the agency to be able to write their own stories. And so history is 99% of the time written by men, you know? And, and so the only way that we have to bring voices to these women sometimes is to write them ourselves. And so that's also like kind of my mission. Like one of the things I try to do is like give a voice to the voiceless, you know? And to me, that's very often the Jewish women of the past who, who couldn't write their own story um, but all the men around them told the story. And so I want to find out what a woman's story would have been then. And the only way to do that is fantasy. The thing is, all writing is fantasy, right? Like, it's yeah. all made up. Even writing about your next door neighbor is fantasy, because none of us know <laughs> what anybody's really like. Um, yeah. You know, so, so like, yes and no. I guess that's my response to it. It really just depends on, uh, on, on what you're trying to write, I guess. What do you think? Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question, which is, um, what would you say to someone who was kind of wrestling with, is this my story to tell? Do I have the authority or can I, should I be telling this story? Like if one of your clients came to you with that question, what would you say to guide them? Um, I don't know. I think that sometimes when you're wrestling with it, it's a sign that it's a question, right? Because like, if you're not wrestling with it, then, and you feel that you have the confidence to tell that story then. But if you're wrestling with it on the one hand, it's a sign that you're doing the work and that's important and you should be wrestling with it. On the other hand, you should examine why you're wrestling with it. Like, why do you feel that you're not able to own it? And sometimes it, it, that involves me saying to my client, listen, like, you know, this is a part of your heritage and you can own this. You have a right to own this. You have a right to talk about this. You know, somebody's like, oh, but I grew up in America and I don't really connected to my heritage from wherever my family came from or, you know, um, but other times I have said, listen, I don't think that this is, you know, 
the right thing for you to tell and the right story for you to tell. And I will say that, you know, um, the climate in the market right now is not conducive to, you know, this type of story or in the way in which it's told, or, you know, since this is not something that you yourself have experienced, you know, maybe you'd have to try to talk to a lot of sensitivity readers. Like question is, is it worth the amount of work that you need to put into it to make sure that it was authentic? You know, like, and I don't have definitive answers to any of that. Um, there are ways that you can do your work and do your research. And I encourage my clients to do it. But then there's, the question is always like, why this story, right? And I'm always turning it back inwards. Like, what is the story that only you can tell, right? Yeah. And, and that's the story I want you to tell. Right. Yeah, not, and it strikes not, me that the the Sisters of the Winter Wood was exactly that for you. And that's it, you're taking us all the way back to the beginning because that's what I kind of wanted to say about the SNCC um, was that very often the SNCC comes when you do that, when you tell, when you add this element that's just so much a part of your own heart, like your own, it can be your own pain, it can be your own joy, your family's history. I find that SNCC comes when I, I find a way to connect the story idea to something that is deeply personal and of me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's when you get to the place that like, nobody can take the story from me because nobody can do it in the same way that I can, you know? Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, you know, I think that that, but that authenticity and the confidence come and, and it's not like no writer is confident. None of us are confident, but to a certain degree, we all are because anybody who thinks that I have something to tell the world, I have a story to tell. I have something to put down on paper. That's brave. You know, there are a lot of people out there that are like, I have nothing to contribute <laughs> or like, or I can't write or, you know, and the fact that we do have a kind of confidence, any of us who put a pen to paper and think that like, we have something to contribute. Yes. Yeah. I th always think of writing as a way of speaking without being interrupted. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And so you do kind of have to own in order to, to in order to have to have the gumption to write a book. You do have to have this, even if it's a very quiet kind of uh, still part inside yourself. There has to be something in you that says, I have something to say. And what I say right. matters in some way, you know, right. right whether I'm yeah. adding to the conversation already out there, whether I'm telling my own fairy tale, whether I'm telling a story that's never been told before, whether I'm making a commentary on society, whatever it is, yeah. it could be any number of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was so great. It was so great it talking was. to you and Lindsay. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And it was really fun to kind of, yeah, meet you, but not meet you. Um, I hope yeah. one day we'll meet in person. <laughs> That would be so amazing to meet in person. Uh, yeah, it's been so wonderful. Thank you for coming on Story of the Book and chatting to us about your your beautiful, fairy taley, gorgeous book. I mean, it's just it's like just one of the most delicious books I've ever read. Thank you so much. <laughs> so yeah, and it's been fascinating talking to you about your process and the way that you think about writing. Thank you so much for listening to story of the book if you like this episode please share it with a friend or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts until next time stay safe and keep writing bye, bye. <laughs>